Support for this podcast is provided by the District of Columbia Bar Taxation Community. Join the District of Columbia Bar Taxation Community on January 25th and 26th, 2023 for its annual tax conference. Held in person at the DC Bar headquarters and also available virtually, the tax conference will bring together senior government officials from the OECD, the U.S. Department of the Treasury, the IRS, and Capitol Hill, as well as other top tax practitioners and academics from the D.C. area and beyond for two days of timely panels on the latest tax law developments. Register now to network with high-profile tax experts and join in-depth discussions on a wide range of subject matter in the areas of individual, corporate, partnership, international, and energy taxation, as well as the latest issues in tax controversy and tax administration. D.C. Bar membership is not required to attend. Discounted registration is available for government and nonprofit attorneys. Visit dcbar.org slash taxconference to register today. That's dcbar.org slash taxconference. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, TCJA at 5, International Edition. December 22nd marks the fifth anniversary of the signing of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act into law. With half a decade of guilty, fitty, and the salt cap behind us, we're marking the occasion with three episodes taking a closer look at how the TCJA has affected taxes on the state, federal, and international levels. This week's episode, the third in our series, takes a closer look at the TCJA's relationship with international taxes. Here to talk more about this is Tax Notes senior legal reporter Andrew Velarde. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. It's nice to be back. So we've already heard about the effect on state and federal taxes. Could you give us a brief overview of what effect the TCJA had on international taxes? Well, it essentially transformed the U.S. international tax regime through enactment of the transition tax and a move to a quasi-territorial system The changes sought to bring back trillions of dollars in earnings companies that stashed or some would argue were trapped overseas. There's now a 100% dividends received deduction for certain foreign source dividends for U.S. shareholders. And part of the changes also saw enactment of rules such as the global intangible low tax income provision, guilty, as you said. It's kind of a type of minimum tax on offshore earnings. And then there's the base erosion anti-abuse tax provision designed to prevent earnings stripping. And of course, none of this has been done in a vacuum. The OECD has been looking to implement its own international reforms, which could alter the global landscape further. Now, you recently talked to someone about this. Could you tell us about your guest? I had the pleasure of speaking with Chip Harder. He's now at PwC, but from the fall of 2017 in the month leading up to TCJA passage until the end of 2020, after the release of many of the TCJA regs, he was the former Treasury Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Tax Affairs. In that role, he oversaw a lot of the policy decisions Treasury made in implementing the guidance following up on the Act's passage, as well as playing a vital role in U.S. negotiations at the OECD. All right, let's go to that interview. Hi, Chip. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. To kick things off here, I'd like to ask, what was the atmosphere like, the discussions between Treasury and lawmakers leading up to the TCJA passage? Well, you know, it it might surprise you, but Treasury had relatively little input into the design of the TCJA. The Republicans on the Hill had spent several years studying and 
preparing proposals for the moment when they you know, would control the, the Hill and the White House. And you know, I had been considering some pretty radical proposals like Paul Ryan's border-adjusted cash flow tax to replace the corporate income tax. But you know, when the Trump administration came in, they, they had not prepared a, a, as full uh, an agenda in the tax area. So ba basically what you had were, you know, the big six negotiations with Gary Cohen and Secretary Mnuchin negotiating on behalf of the administration with the congressional leaders. But that was pretty high level and it was concentrating on things like getting the 20% corporate tax rate. And it produced the so-called framework, which was basically a PowerPoint deck with you know, one page on international tax issues that just said we would be going to a territorial system with some unspecified you know, backup regime to prevent abuse. And so <laughs> in truth, the administration's input to the process was pretty sparse. And, you know, in, let's say, November and December, as the, the legislation was in the process of being written, we at Office of Tax Policy, you know, on a weekly basis would send over, you know, our, our technical comments and observations, you know, as, as we saw more text coming out, but but frankly, even there, the uh, bandwidth of the Hill staffs to digest and respond was pretty narrow. As we know, the, the whole process of trying to enact tax legislation based on reconciliation instructions can be pretty chaotic. It's it's time pressured, and you know they too had to satisfy almost every you know senator, this time in the Republican Party, so that the staffs had their hands full juggling all of those considerations. And so it's actually pretty amazing that they succeeded in enacting legislation with you know, ultimately a 21% corporate tax rate. And it's not particularly surprising under the circumstances that, you know, the statute itself had had some real issues when when it emerged. Now that we're five years out, and with hindsight being twenty twenty, are there any international provisions in particular that you think should have been tweaked or removed? <laughs> well, again, we we at Treasury obviously had to deal with the statute that Congress passed, and yeah, do our best to. Um, take off the rough edges or to implement or, uh, you know, deal with problematic issues under it. And so that did keep us very busy. I mean, maybe just starting with the beat. I mean, the, the treaty interaction issues, yeah, arose during the legislative process, you know, Secretary Mnuchin got a letter from five you know, finance ministers where they were objecting that you know, the beat was inconsistent with our um, existing treaty obligations. Yeah, that one, we at Treasury decided that we, we would simply write regulations implementing the domestic legislation 
and, and not address the treaty interaction issues, though, you know, a, as you know, as the Treasury has been negotiating, you know, new treaties and protocols to existing treaties, it's been very careful to specify in the treaties that the bead applies notwithstanding anything else to the contrary in the treaties. But, you know, the, the, the issue about the uh, priority between the beat legislation and pre-existing treaties, you know, has, has not yet been resolved. You know, all, also with respect to the beat, you know, it, it's an unfortunate architecture from a policy standpoint that the beat combines in a single sort of minimum tax structure, you know, limitations on base erosion and limitations on credit, such as the foreign tax credit. You therefore have this amazing cliff effect where yeah, a taxpayer can lose the benefit of its foreign tax credits if it, you know, trips the 3% or 2% base erosion percentage threshold. Uh, and that, that's a, a very harsh structure. We were able to address that to some degree by providing taxpayers with an election to forego the benefit of deductions for income tax purposes with respect to related party deductible payments to foreign affiliates to avoid falling off the cliff. But again, it, it's just an unfortunate architecture. Similarly, you know, with, with respect to the beat, you know, its application to um, foreign banks doing business in the United States could have been extremely harsh. I mean, for banks, interest expenses, their equivalent to cost of goods sold, and you know, taxpayers dealing in, you know, property have a cost of goods sold exception from the beat, but, you know, banks don't. And potentially, you know, the result is confiscatory taxation. And as a result of the bank capital adequacy requirements that required them to maintain a substantial portion of their, the capitalization of their U.S. operations in the form of related party subordinated debt, you know, usually in the form of TLAC fundings. And so, you know, we and the, the secretary were getting expressions of grave concern from the parts of the federal government that regulate banks that, you know, this could drive foreign banks out of the U.S. banking market to the detriment of our capital markets. And, yeah, you know, they, they were telling us it was very urgent that we, we somehow fix this. And, you know, ultimately, we... We observed that the Obama administration, you know, as one of their final acts, had granted relief with respect to TLAC debt for exactly these reasons. Basically, you know, under normal debt equity definitions or debt equity principles under U.S. tax law, you know, TLAC would frequently not be debt at all and therefore have no interest deduction for payments on it, but the Obama administration, you know, appropriately, in our view, granted relief for TLAC debt 
you know, made the interest on it deductible even where it would not otherwise be deductible. And we, we concluded that you know, Congress was aware of this when they passed the beat and that therefore it would be inappropriate to make you know, what is really a lesser additional adjustment, which says it's not only interest, but it's, it's also not subject to the beat. There were some things we just were not able to fix, and it remains a, a quite you know, harsh regime you know, in part because it doesn't depend on whether the related party is subject to tax, the related payee is subject to tax on its income inclusion. And so, you know, we, we were not able to uh, provide exceptions where the, the income is picked up under subpart F or guilty. So again, there there's a lot left with respect to the beat that's suboptimal. And I personally hope that it will be replaced eventually as part of a broader pillar two implementation by the United States. But again, that that's probably not going to happen in the next couple of years. I'd like to come back to your points about the beat a little bit later. But before we go any further on that, I did want to ask, with the reg writing outside of the beat, were there any other particularly tough decisions that you had to make with regard to any other provisions in there? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, the guilty is is right up there. Uh, I, I do think there was a genuine misunderstanding on the Hill during the legislative process as to how the guilty was intended to operate. What Was it a true minimum tax where you know, there would be no U.S. tax liability at the margin on tested income if it was subject to a foreign tax rate of at least 13 and an eighth percent? Or was the guilty just one more, you know, foreign tax credit limitation basket subject to the full expense allocation, you know, such that, you know, a U.S. corporation could have a marginal U.S. tax liability from owning and operating CFCs, no matter how high the foreign tax on those CFCs was. And, you know, the statute reads as if, you know, the guilty inclusion is just goes in yet another separate foreign tax credit limitation basket with the legislative history was ambiguous. Again, I think this was an issue that was, you know, fuzzed over a little bit on the Hill as they were trying to line up all the votes in, in favor of, of the bill. And yeah, I, I do think, you know, most of the Republican senators voting for the bill thought that the guilty was a, a true minimum tax and any uh, CFC that pays at least 13 and an eighth percent essentially gets full territorial treatment for its income and no marginal tax to the U.S. shareholder. Uh, and they were not bashful about calling up the secretary and you know, telling him that that was their understanding of congressional intent, but ultimately just staring at the statutory language, you know, we, we felt that we were compelled to basically treat the guilty as a separate limitation FTC basket you know, subject to the normal rules for FTC baskets, but 
that we did have authority to vary the regulations dealing with expense apportionment as it applies to the guilty basket as appropriate to reflect the uh, special you know nature and characteristics of guilty and you know that thus we wrote the regulations about for instance R&D expense not being allocable to the guilty basket and you know treating half of the stock of CFCs that produce guilty income as a tax exempt asset given that effectively the guilty is taxed only at half the rate of, of regular inclusion. So again, uh, that 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 was one where we had to maneuver to get to where we achieved a decent policy outcome in, in light of the statutory language. In another really tough issue that you know we we can talk more about, and uh, was yeah you know, the gap period for the effective date of guilty for fiscal year CFCs, as, as well as the, the failure to amend the 951A2B provisions of, of, of subpart F to account for the fact that dividends paid out of CFCs, you know, receive the 245 cap A deduction. And these were, you know, gaps in the legislation that, you know, created simply enormous loopholes, basically the potential to get unlimited amounts of earnings and profits out from CFCs with, without any U.S. tax and, you know, potentially tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of, of earnings and profits. Technical corrections, you know, were clearly the, the, the right way to address this and technical corrections were proposed, but it was simply not politically possible to have those go forward. And so you know, I, I thought it was important to draft some regulations that at least would target the you know, most structured and transactions that would likely have been aimed at achieving precisely the tax consequence. And so we, we did draft the regulations that aimed at, you know, fairly narrowly defined extraordinary dispositions of stock and extraordinary reductions of stock holdings that you know, taxpayers entered into not in the ordinary course of business, only on a very big scale you know, on the premise that that type of transaction was probably, you know, highly tax motivated and did not change the economic uh, situation of the taxpayer much because it was all executed within common ownership and, you know, essentially take away the, the 245 cap aid deduction for earnings that were recognized in those transactions. So again, viewed these as fairly targeted anti-use regulations aimed at the defined structured transactions and in no way attempting to change the effective date of guilty or, or change the operation of 951A2B. So we did work very carefully with, with 
general counsel to go through a number of approaches for uh, writing a, a, a targeted anti-abuse rule to address those specific tr structured transactions. And, and that's the genesis of, of the 245 Cap A-5 regs. And as you know, those are in the process of, of being litigated and we'll see where we end up. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. The lack of qualified candidates continues to cause issues in the profession, but progressive firms are empowering admin with tax automation software to do the heavy lifting. The SafeSend suite will save your admin staff hours on assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, saving money, and making staff happier. And your staff deserve the sweet life this coming busy season. Schedule a demo to experience this workflow automation solution for yourself at safesend.com. That's safesend.com. You know, we have Liberty Global won a partial summary judgment motion over the 245 DRD limitation temporary regs for Treasury ignoring notice and comment requirements. You have FedEx challenging a foreign tax credit disallowance provision in the transition tax regs for ignoring the statute. You have Kyocera. They're making a challenge on the guidance provision that excluded a Section 78 dividend from the DRD for violating the statute that they're a fiscal year taxpayer situation there, another kind of mismatch of timing. Now, I understand you don't want to, can't speak to these challenges directly, but speaking more generally, did Treasury imagine these type of challenges to the administrative process or to the authority under this statute? Did you imagine this when you were drafting your guidance? No, we were very mindful of the, the limits on our authority to uh, write regulations during the whole process. I'll observe that, you know, as Republicans, the uh, drafters of TCJA were uh, not particularly generous in their grants of regulatory authority to Treasury. And I'm, I'm actually particularly jealous of my successors under <laughs> who, who, you know, in, in the more recent legislation have, you know, very broad grants of authority to, you know, do what's necessary to effectuate the intent of Congress and the intent of the provisions where we, you know, did not have nearly as broad grants. And I, I must say, when I took the job, I never anticipated that, you know, I'd be spending as much as a, my time or it would be as an important part of the job as, you know, walking down the hall of the chief counsel to uh, discuss whether our proposals were within our authority. So we, we obviously did exercise our authority where we thought it was important for us to do so and where we thought we had authority. And unfortunately, in quite a few instances where the intent of Congress was pretty clear, and I, I think it would have been great if we could have effectuated that intent, we concluded we didn't have authority, like you know, with respect to fixing the repeal of 958B4 or, you know, creating a subpart F exception from guilty. 
or being able to entertain you know, statements from senators saying that they didn't think any expense should be allocated to uh, the, the guilty. There were, you know, probably as many times that we concluded that we didn't have authority with respect to things we would have liked to have fixed as when we concluded that that we did. Now, Chip, you not only oversaw the drafting of the TCJA regs, but you also served as lead negotiator during the OECD global tax discussions. So to that point, when the U.S. passed the TCJA, how did the rest of the world view U.S. reform? And do you think the TCJA legislation influenced the direction of the international tax negotiations at the OECD? Yes. Now, it it was an amazing perspective to have. You know, I I joined the Treasury at the beginning of September, and the uh, legislative momentum was picking up in, you know, October and November and, you know, through December. I, I must say, a lot of our foreign, you know, counterparties were watching with some mix of fascination and horror as the U.S., was considering what they viewed as very you know, radical proposals. I mean, we, we forget that the TCJA bill, as it passed the House, would have essentially taxed all imports into the United States on a destination basis. And so, you know, one of the early things I had to uh, do in my job was to keep my foreign counterparts at the OECD sort of briefed on, you know, what was happening in the U.S. in terms of this legislation. And it really was a, um, you know, somewhat mind-blowing exercise for, you know, a lot of our, you know, European counterparts in particular. Now, at the time, most of the rest of the world had concluded that they simply were not satisfied by how far the BEPS 1.0 process had gone at the OECD. And so we had been seeing quite a flurry of, of unilateral measures being adopted around the world. And so when I actually showed up for my first OECD meeting in October in Rome, you know, my European counterparts very politely explained to me that, you know, they were all going to adopt digital services taxes and that what the OECD should be doing is negotiating a standard digital services tax that you know, all countries should follow if, if they adopt digital services taxes. And I mean, beyond that, there was not much agreement as to what else should be done, but that, that was the proposed immediate agenda for the OECD. And, you know, I was given, you know, very clear instructions from the White House that the one thing I could not allow to happen at the OECD was to negotiate a digital services tax that, you know, focused on, uh, you know, an industry where, you know, U.S., uh, multinationals would be bearing the very large majority of the tax liability. What we did was, you know, to pivot, to to say that we were not willing to discuss changing the international tax rules as applied to only one industry, which the U.S. dominates, 
But, you know, we in the United States have gone through this, you know, pretty comprehensive international tax reform exercise that, you know, applies across industries generally, and we would be happy to participate in broad OECD negotiations about, you know, fundamental reform of international tax standards, provided that, you know, it applied neutrally across the board to all types of business. And it was basically that 2018 was a year of a transition where we were pivoting away from focusing on digital services tax towards a more comprehensive set of proposals that in very large part were, you know, drawing on principles of the TCJA. I mean, the uh, Pillar 2 proposals were, were clearly very much, you know, based on the guilty regime, though it emerged that most countries wanted to you know, progress the guilty regime further by going to uh, per country measurement of tax rates. And the TCJA also uh, inspired some elements of Pillar 1. But I think the main thing was that the U.S. had just gone through a quite comprehensive rethink of classical rules of you know, taxing jurisdiction and shook things up quite a bit in terms of convincing the rest of the world that these rules might be in play and created an openness to reconsider some of these rules on a coordinated basis, you know, for the first time in many decades. The Biden administration proposed several sweeping changes to several of the key TCJA international provisions, which didn't come to pass. We have moved guilty to country-by-country determination, removed the exemption for the qualified business asset investment, and raised the rate. You have previously said that some of these proposals would be, I think your words were a daunting prospect for U.S. multinationals. You said that previously on a panel. Biden also proposed doing away with the beat, you know, designed to discourage earning stripping, but some would argue not acting as it should, and replace it with the OECD's Pillar 2 global anti-base erosion rules. As I said, these proposals didn't come to pass, despite guilty not being aligned with Pillar 2's min tax and beat receiving criticism as being ineffective. Do you think guilty and beat, and I don't want you to conflate these too much, obviously two very different provisions, but have they reached their intended targets and accomplished their goals? And can they exist side by side long term with the OECD international rules that they do not fully align with? Or will something have to be done? Well, backtracking a bit, while I was at the OECD, my uh, negotiating instructions were pretty clear. You know, with, with respect to the uh, Pillar 2 proposals, we, we could fully support the rest of the world adopting a you know, minimum tax regime, but I was not able to promise that the U.S. would change its guilty regime. You know, we, we liked the fact that it would level the playing field for U.S. multinationals if you know, multinationals based elsewhere were, were subject to a comprehensive minimum tax regime. But, you know, the administration was very proud of just, you know, what it had accomplished in the TCJA and was not prepared to say that, you know, we'd go back to the Hill to uh, re-examine that and modify it. And so 
while I was there, we were talking about sort of guilty compatibility. And yeah, I think we got reasonably close to reaching agreement that under the proposed pillar two at the time that, you know, the guilty would be treated as a qualified IIR, even if it were applied on a global blending basis. And again, things were a little different back then when the proposed pillar two rate was likely to be like 12 and a half percent and guilty was 13 and an eighth, et cetera. But we got reasonably close. Now, For, you know, reasons I understand and, you know, have some sympathy for, the Biden administration thought that the beat could be materially improved and they they wanted, in terms of its architecture, and then they also wanted to dramatically increase the rate on it, which is what I was commenting on being a daunting prospect. Um... And the new administration viewed the uh, OECD negotiations as a, a, a way to help get that done. And we, we know that they were not successful in, in you know, using reconciliation procedures to get you know, their Build Back Better proposals with respect to the guilty enacted into law. And so we are now in a, a very awkward position where you know they, they've negotiated one set of rules at the OECD, but you know, at least for the next couple of years, we're unlikely to be able to conform the U.S. rules to, to that OECD model. And, and that raises, you know, not, not insuperable difficulties, but it certainly will make life much more complicated for U.S.-based multinationals in terms of compliance, and you know, it also raises some serious issues about you know, what needs to be done to avoid double taxation. I mean, that having been said, I think that you know, the beat and guilty you know, remain quite flawed regimes, yet notwithstanding you know, our efforts at Treasury in the last administration to take some of the rough edges off through uh, regulations. I, I believe that on balance, you know, the best outcome for U.S. multinationals would be if the United States simply adopted Pillar Two in substitution for the uh, the current guilty and beat regimes to where basically we would have a level playing field for U.S. multinationals and foreign multinationals applying the same regime. And, you know, I do recognize that there are a number of design issues and flaws in the current Pillar 2 rules. But, you know, I do think there is some hope that Yeah, some of those could be addressed over time. And it's not like we don't have, you know, flaws under the the guilty and beat. And, you know, I also recognize there's always a risk that, you know, when the U.S. adopts any sort of minimum tax regime, that, you know, in the future, the rate of that minimum tax could be raised for U.S. multinationals by the U.S. But uh, I don't think that's materially bigger risk if the U.S. adopts Pillar 2 
instead of the guilty, but you know, life is uncertain. And uh, obviously these views are, are my personal views and not necessarily those of any uh, current or prior employer, but you know, just having practiced international tax for 40 years or so and having lived through a lot of the evolution of the current rules and the uh, participated in the uh, current OECD negotiations and the TCJA drafting exercise, you know, I, I do think it would be, you know, a, a beneficial landing place for U.S. multinationals if we could simply adopt pillar two in the United States and do away with our current guilty and beat rules. So, Chip, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, my pleasure. These are interesting times and great topics. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, three tax law academics look at the guilty tax rates through a tax expenditure lens. And three tax professors explore how artificial intelligence could be used to automatically find tax minimization strategies in the tax law. In Tax Notes State, Jennifer Karpchuk reviews major state and local tax rulings from the past year in Texas, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and California. Carrie Christian and Stephen Purcell explain how big data analytics is a powerful tool that is perfectly suited to tax enforcement. In Tax Notes International, Robert Plattner makes the case for taxing corporations that profit from personal consumer data. Bill Parks argues that it is past time for countries to adopt formulary apportionment, and he offers recommendations on how to implement it. And finally, in Featured Analysis, Marty Sullivan analyzes the expanded child tax credit, and he explores how extending the credit could affect poverty and the economy. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.